0: I'm Dr. Thomas Farley, Commissioner of the Philadelphia Department of Public Health, and you're listening to the True Philadelphia Podcast with Matt O'Donnell.
1: Thanks for joining us on the True Philadelphia Podcast. I'm Matt O'Donnell. One of the earliest and sternest warnings about the danger of the novel coronavirus in our area came from one of the most consistent voices throughout the pandemic, Dr. Thomas Farley, the Philadelphia Health Commissioner. You could say he had been preparing for this moment all throughout his medical career. The North Jersey native is a pediatrician and epidemiologist who spent more than a decade with the Centers for Disease Control studying how infectious diseases spread. He also led New York City's Health Department during the H1N1 pandemic. When he took over the Philadelphia Health Department in 2016, Dr. Farley knew the big one would come one day, the big one being a worldwide pandemic that would disrupt the health and lives of millions of people. The city would record its first official COVID-19 case about four years later on March 10, 2020. Dr. Farley began by giving daily briefings on the number of cases and deaths, the restrictions needed to flatten the curve, and the measures we all need to do like wearing masks. That is where our conversation starts, because I noticed that throughout all of this, Dr. Thomas Farley seems so steady, so academic, so calm. All right, Dr. Farley, thanks for joining us on the True Philadelphia podcast. Truly a busy man these days. You know, you lead a health department in one of the largest cities in the country, there's a pandemic going on, you're doing briefings constantly, you're talking to all sorts of people all the time, and yet, and this is not a criticism, this is a compliment, you seem so calm. Why is that?
0: Uh, I guess I was just born that way. You know, I did tend not to get very excited. Um, And also, I do recognize that a lot of people are pretty anxious about this epidemic, as you can understand. Uh, and so to be able to communicate that we can get past this, I think, helps people calm down themselves and uh, do the things they need to do to protect themselves.
1: Your background is in pediatrics and also epidemiology. The pediatrics part, I bet, has a lot to do with remaining calm, right? Uh,
0: maybe. So I'm, I'm used to being uh, around a lot of chaos, around a lot of children. Uh, it doesn't bother me at all. Uh, and, uh, but I do think being the steady voice is, uh, is important at a time like this when people are worried. How often do you sleep? (laughs) I sleep every night, uh, never quite as much as I would like to, but, uh, you know, I try to take care of myself.
1: Why is it so hard for a certain number of people? And I really, and maybe you do, I really don't know how many people this describes, but people have a hard time listening to doctors. Why is that?
0: Uh, do they have a hard time listening to doctors? I don't know. I, I, I hope that people do listen to their doctors. Doctors uh, are trained to, to use scientific information to communicate it to folks. Um, you know, I, I think these days people have a lot of other sources of information. They can go to the internet and read things that may seem very definitive uh, and it's complicated so I would recommend that people do listen to doctors. I think that they're going to get sound advice at a time like this and, and they should do that.
1: You spent 11 years working at the Centers for Disease Control's Epidemic Intelligence Service. And as you know, but just for the audience, it focuses on field work for studying the spread of a disease, very handy in situations like this. What did you learn most that prepared you for COVID-19 during that time?
0: The Epidemic Intelligence Service is really one of the gems of uh, programs that the federal government has. It trains doctors in how to investigate outbreaks of disease and epidemics, Respond to them, uh, and uh, and then those doctors go out and often staff health departments uh, across the country as well as in the CDC, uh, and so uh, you'll get into some uh, a wide variety of very uh, unusual epidemics. Uh, each one where people are maybe uh, anxious about the situation, uh, and you learn to use data to understand what is causing the disease to occur, um, and then to communicate clearly to people the steps they need to do to try to prevent the disease from continuing to occur. Uh, And this uh, COVID problem is really just that on a giant scale, where uh, we we use data, look at data a lot to determine uh, what's going on, uh, where the risks are occurring, and then try to communicate as clearly as possible to to all kinds of people as well as organizations, steps they need to take to
1: reduce their risk. I'm sure during that time in the CDC, they talked about the big one. And does this fit the description of the big one that they warned about?
0: Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, the big one was felt to be most likely pandemic influenza uh, and a shift in the influenza virus that would uh, make it so that everybody was susceptible. Uh, this isn't influenza, but it is behaving very much like that. So we have been planning for years uh, for addressing a virus like this. It uh, doesn't mean that we've got it all right. doesn't mean that all the, impl- all the plans are uh, exactly what we need to follow, but that thinking did help us figure out how to respond.
1: You've been very prescient on this, especially early on. And I want to take you back to February. You know, the first U.S. confirmed case of local transmission of coronavirus was February 26th. And that means, and this is again for the audience, that the patient didn't travel to an outbreak area or have contact with a diagnosed patient of the disease. The day before, on February 25th, Dr. Farley, you said the coronavirus so far is not in Philadelphia. It's likely coming here because it's spread around the world. Take me back to that day when you said that. What were some of the reactions from people?
0: Uh, you know, people were worried. Uh, people were seeing, um, you know, information on the news uh, that made them worried. At the same time, uh, people had a certain skepticism. Uh, There's a lot that you see on the news of this occurring in another location, and you know, it never really comes close to home, uh, and so. I wanted to be clear that this is likely to come close to home, that there are certain things that you're going to experience and certain things you're going to need to do uh, as this virus and this epidemic uh, hits right here in your neighborhood in Philadelphia.
1: Did you get any pushback back then, late February?
0: Uh, Oh, you know, actually I thought early on that we might have a difficulty persuading people to take this uh, epidemic seriously. In fact, people saw so much on the news that uh, people were quite scared. Um, And people, if anything, thought that maybe we were not uh, acting as quickly as we should. Uh, that they were more scared in a way than we were, uh, and so uh, I have tried from the beginning to try to communicate the risk uh, as accurately as possible, to not overstate the risk and not understate the risk.
1: What was the best decision you made early on?
0: Well, you know, the most important decisions early on actually were made not by us but by the governor. Uh, we we had the first confirmed case in the city of Philadelphia. We heard about on March the 10th, uh, and we. Uh, didn't, we saw maybe three or four more cases over the next week. It was on March the 17th that uh, the governor shut down the school systems, uh, and that we started the shutdown in the city. That was something that we might have made that decision ourselves um, within a matter of days, but the governor did it before we did. In retrospect, that was right for the governor and acted very quickly. We had almost, again, very, very few cases in the city. Nonetheless, uh, a lot of reason I think that it would, the virus is probably spreading quickly. And the sooner we shut down, uh, the smaller that peak would be when it got at its worst. Uh, so I give a lot of credit to the government for doing that. Do you play golf? Uh, not anymore. I did when I was younger.
1: Oh, you did. OK, you know what a mulligan is. Um, is there something that you, even now you look back, you're like, you know, I wish I would have done something completely different there.
0: Well, the um, we, our biggest concern when we got the, the worst part of the epidemic was that uh, our hospitals were going to be overwhelmed uh, and that uh, people who got sick would not be able to get adequately cared for in the hospital. It took a lot of steps to protect the hospitals. At the same time, we were working with nursing homes to try to support them. Uh, but in retrospect, the nursing homes were where the, this uh, epidemic was at its worst, that uh, we had the greatest number of deaths. As you know, 50% of our deaths occurred in nursing homes. Uh, and so um, I don't think that there's any way I could have predicted that at the time. But if I had to do it all over again, I would have put more energy and attention on nursing homes and maybe a little less on hospitals.
1: Anything in particular you might have been able to do? I mean, I guess there's a question, where would the elderly people have gone? Would they have stayed at home or?
0: I don't think that there's any way, we couldn't have emptied out the nursing homes, but uh, the nursing homes are, uh, it's it's difficult to prevent the spread of this virus in nursing homes Uh, and staff members or people living in the community, they were getting infection, they were bringing it into the nursing homes, people got infected. Uh, the, The way to prevent that is through uh, training and meticulous attention to technique in nursing homes, and I think we're we're much closer to that now than we were then. Uh, but it was all pretty new for nursing home staff, and so uh, maybe a little more training early on on how to how to manage the situation uh, might have been able to to lower some of the case counts there.
1: We saw a lot of states reopen, in many people's opinion, on the health care side, way too early. Uh, Georgia, Florida, uh, Texas come to mind. How did those reopenings impact Philadelphia directly? And did they set us back to a point where you can actually verify that?
0: Uh, they did impact us in a negative way and it was a real problem. Yeah, The Southern states and some Western states they opened up way too early, way too recklessly. People were going back to restaurants and bars, not wearing masks. Uh, so they had a big epidemic wave uh, really across the entire nation. Uh, here in Philadelphia, we had a small epidemic second wave, you might call it, um, in, uh, in ma- mainly mid to late July. Uh, and uh, we know now from our contact tracing, not a lot of those people reported travel. Uh, so they were going to these other states where disease rates were extraordinarily high. Uh, so we saw more cases, and we've just reported now that there's been an increase in deaths in the past few weeks. There's a uh, always a lag between when we see the, the rise in cases and when we see the rise in deaths. Uh, so uh, absolutely, I feel like that around the rest of the country did hurt us. It didn't hurt us nearly as much as the first epidemic wave. Uh, but it, it definitely, uh, we, our case rates would be lower now if that had not happened.
1: Um, you began leading the New York City Health Department in 2009, and that was right as the H1N1 uh, pandemic hit with the flu. Uh, and this is a virus that, as you know, mostly impacted young children and didn't seem to impact older people. And the coronavirus SARS 2, uh, COVID-19 is the exact opposite. How do you explain that?
0: You know, each virus is different and uh, us as, as a society and, and as human biologic entities, uh, we respond differently to them. You know, when uh, the H1N1 influenza virus hit in 2009, we thought that was a big one. Uh, it was a big shift in the, what that virus was. and We thought a lot of people were going to be susceptible and it was going to be very similar to the scenario we see seen now. Uh, once we got into it for a few weeks, it became apparent that older people weren't getting it. Uh, And in retrospect, they weren't getting it because they probably had antibodies from having seen a similar strain of the virus some years past, just enough to prevent them from getting seriously ill. But the young people didn't have those antibodies, so that's why they were getting it. So that ended up being not nearly as bad as we thought it was going to be. Uh, When COVID came along, this is a virus that clearly is a brand new virus. Nobody's ever seen it. Nobody's got uh, antibodies to it. But a young, healthy people tend to be able to handle it pretty well. The immune system can cover it. in that way, it's not that, uh, as I said, it's, it's a nasty virus, it's not that smart. Uh, and so a young, healthy immune system be able, is ha- able to handle it. But for older folks who are not as strong immunologically, uh, they can get very seriously ill. Uh, that combination makes it play out very differently across the whole society.
1: I've heard comments from people that suggest that older people are expendable and that we should make decisions that would put them in jeopardy so that we can quote unquote, live our lives. Let's say that H1N1 was the big one happening now and it had the characteristics like, you know, spreading amongst asymptomatic people very easily and and becoming a full scale pandemic. Would flipping the tables and having children being more at risk have the public's mind a bit different about this?
0: Uh, Certainly the public cares a lot more about uh, a death in a child than the death in an elderly person. Uh, We certainly can, in the health department, a death is a death and every death is a tragedy. Uh, even if it's your, you know, 88-year-old mother, they may not have many years left. It really is tragedy. Uh, and uh, and we try to do everything we can to prevent each of those. Uh, it does, the, the pattern in which this virus is occurring does change a little bit our strategy. Uh, so as you know, our strategy has one element of protecting vulnerable populations. If we can put extra precautions around people who are elderly or people with chronic medical conditions, then if other younger people get this infection, and don't get seriously ill, we haven't done a lot of damage. So uh, we we can, in a way, take advantage of the populations that we know are uh, unusually at risk uh, to try to address the, the impact overall.
1: When was the last time you had a cold? Remember those? I wondered if all of these new daily practices and habits are having benefits beyond preventing new coronavirus infections. Dr. Farley talks about that, plus, what the end game might be. Will we always need to wear masks? Could we see effective regular treatments for the disease? And what about getting a vaccine? Personally, I get sick maybe once or twice a year. I'm, luckily, I'm a very healthy person. I don't tend to get sick very often. I have not even had any feeling of sickness since this all began. And I know that all the new things that we are doing with social distancing, washing our hands, being careful about putting them near our mouths, probably play. plays a lot into that. Do you have hope that maybe the actual flu season may be not as impactful and that people aren't just gonna get sick that often because we have more things like that ingrained in us now?
0: Yeah, you know, I I see a number of articles about uh, warning about the flu season coming up uh, and it may be really bad, but in fact, it may be not as bad as an ordinary flu season because we are taking those precautions. The mask, the hand washing, the distance, That's gonna help prevent the spread of flu in the same way that helps prevent the spread of COVID. Uh, I'm still strongly recommending that everybody get a flu vaccine uh, because we certainly can't be sure and flu can be very deadly. Uh, But um, I'm hopeful that maybe the flu season won't be as bad as a typical flu
1: season. The virus that causes polio, we have a vaccine, but no treatment. With AIDS, we have effective treatments, but there is no vaccine. Do you see either of those two scenarios being what will happen eventually with COVID-19? Uh,
0: it does appear to be that this is, it's a lot easier to develop a vaccine against COVID-19 than develop treatment. And that's the way it is with most viruses. So I think we're gonna see that the most progress on, on vaccines quicker than uh, progress in treatment. Uh, and that's overall a good thing. You know, vaccination uh, really is, is a wonderful thing. I think it's the greatest advance in uh, all the history of medical science uh, and so we can really get rid of this uh, virus if we vaccinate people appropriately and if we have a really good vaccine. Treatment is kind of a secondary thing. I would say HIV is different in that, but it's a vaccine that's proven to be very hard to produce uh, effectively, uh, but treatment has, uh, has made a lot of advances.
1: I consider the anti-vax movement very fringe still. I think they're very loud, and, but it's still pretty small, at least I hope so, uh, and I'm sure you have feelings on that. Uh, you also have the idea that some people may not feel it's safe to take a vaccine because of this push to get one out as quickly as possible. How do you think those things are going to factor into whether or not people are going to get the vaccine and enough people will get it?
0: Right. So there definitely will be people who are going to be concerned with any vaccine that comes out about its safety. So the first thing is that uh, I'm going to be very looking very carefully at any studies that come out uh, around a vaccine. And I want to make sure that I am convinced that it is safe and effective before I recommend it. Uh, if I'm not sure it's safe and effective, I'm not gonna be recommending it across the city of Philadelphia. If it is, then I'm gonna recommend it. And if I fall in the categories of people recommending getting a vaccine, I'm gonna get one publicly so that people can see that I have you know, put my money where my mouth is. Uh, so I, you know, people will be concerned about that. At the same time, we don't need to vaccinate necessarily everybody, um, I think we need to start with the people who are most vulnerable, uh, people who are over the age of 65, for example, people with chronic medical conditions. If we get a very high percentage of those people vaccinated, then we can greatly reduce the mortality rate from this infection. Um, so we'll see how it goes when we get closer to a vaccine. Uh, but I think it'll work out.
1: As you know, the seasonal flu is endemic; it's just sort of a part of our lives and probably will never leave. Maybe, maybe it will. I don't know. Given that you have such high hopes for a vaccine for COVID-19, would that suggest that you don't really think it's going to be endemic like the flu is? Yeah, you
0: know, It's really hard to predict. It is possible that. Uh, We'll vaccinate a lot of people in this uh, world and COVID-19 will totally disappear. It'll be gone. Um, It's also possible that it'll become just part of our yearly routine, kind of like the flu, uh, and that we maybe need to get our annual COVID vaccine uh, or something in between. It's really hard to predict. Um, Let me just say though, because I wanted to take this opportunity, flu vaccine really can save an awful lot of lives and we don't use it as much as we should. Uh, Most people think the flu vaccine is just for people over 65. The flu vaccine is for everybody, um, including children. Uh, And children transmit flu amongst each other and they bring it home to their parents. So if we vaccinate our children, we protect an awful lot of older people with that. And so while people are thinking about vaccines and viruses, this is a great time to commit to getting the flu vaccine this year.
1: I wanna do kind of like a speed round here, Dr. Farley, and I'm gonna present you some statements of things that I've heard from people, whether it's being out and about, or maybe that's on social media, and I want you to respond in, in your role as health commissioner. And you can make these, you know, short, you know, little statements, or you can, you know, expand on them if you want. So, you know, it's really up to you. The first one is 99% of the people who get this survive.
0: Uh, well, that may be true, but you may be part of the one percent, and so you better take it seriously.
1: The virus will do what it wants. It's gonna take its course. We should be allowed to live our lives the way we want to.
0: Uh, strongly disagree with that. It's very clear that what we do individually and what we do as a society has a huge impact on how many people get this infection and how many people die from this infection. And if you don't take it seriously, people will die.
1: Our country's too big, and civil liberties are too important for us. And so there was never a chance that we were going to be able to make this any better than it is now.
0: Uh, I think we, it's clear that the actions that we take are, have a big impact on this virus uh, and that we can manage this as a country. We're not gonna make it go away, uh, but we can greatly limit the number of people who have a serious infection or die from it.
1: The impact of the shutdowns were worse than the virus itself.
0: The impact of the shutdowns were tough. Uh, and, uh, and so we need to figure out what's the right balance between restrictions on our activities to limit the virus spread uh, without restricting it so much that we create more damage. Uh, I think we're close to that right balance now. They're never gonna have a perfect balance. Uh, But clearly, if we didn't do any restrictions on activity, uh, we would have many thousands more deaths in the city of Philadelphia.
1: A Couple more here, quick little statements I've heard while being out and about. It's unfair that the Walmarts were allowed to stay open, but my friend's restaurant couldn't survive the two, three months of the shutdown and had to close.
0: Yeah, I'm very sympathetic to restaurant owners and restaurant managers. They've been hit hard by this. Uh, But the simple scientific fact is that restaurants are high-risk settings. A bunch of people are together inside, not wearing masks. Uh, They spread the virus there. And so we have to put a limit on that setting. Likewise, bars, uh, it's much lower-risk settings elsewhere. Uh, And that's some some of the cruel uh, aspects of this that we simply can't control.
1: This is one that I've said. I'm probably not going to shake hands with anyone anymore.
0: You know, handshaking may be a, uh, you know, a, a... a habit that uh, becomes part of the past uh, people recognize that uh, that there is a risk associated with that some infectious disease doctors never did it uh, life can go on though maybe we'll learn how to bow like they do in the orient when you uh, meet somebody uh, we can still go on society without handshaking
1: i guess the handshake was just to make sure you didn't have a weapon way back in the day and it just kind of stuck and so, so in many ways it just doesn't make any sense
0: uh, yeah, you certainly, you know, you carry uh, germs on your hands and so shaking hands. Is, I, I, I like it as a custom, uh, but uh, I do recognize that there's some uh, disease uh, spread risk associated with it.
1: Some people throw a veil over their eyes and believe in absurd things, that the death toll now at more than 183,000 people is somehow a hoax, that 5G technology is being used to electronically spread the virus, that the seasonal flu is worse. Dr. Farley has heard about it all, but when given the opportunity to vent about misinformation, the commissioner chose instead to highlight how many people do get it and already bought in on the tactics needed to end the pandemic. I get a lot of hate mail, mainly through social media, from people who are upset for valid reasons and sometimes for completely absurd ones. What are some of the things that people have said to you that really have stuck out in terms of that realm? Oh, you
0: know, I get... Emails from uh, people all sorts. People either angry because we've shut down too much, or angry because we haven't shut down enough. And uh, you know, I, you know, I'm letting people die or killing people. I really don't pay attention to those. Uh, I know most people are taking this seriously. Uh, people come up to me and they thank me for the, the work that I've done and communicating. Uh, the, the few people that are, you know, send angry stuff, uh, I just do my best to ignore.
1: I try to do the same thing. Sometimes it's really hard. The city of Philadelphia right now is is definitely not in great shape. Uh, many businesses, as we've been talking about, have had to close. Crime has spiked. The budget's going to be a real mess uh, going forward the next couple of years. And that social distancing aspect that may or may not have to continue over a long period of time can't really coexist with having a city where people are close together and do stuff together and they're out in public. How do you even as health commissioner, see Philadelphia coming out of this pandemic? You know,
0: over the long term, I'm really very optimistic, and maybe that's just my, you know, the constitution. But the, uh, I do think we're going to get a vaccine that's effective, uh, and I think we're going to vaccinate enough people to where uh, this virus is not that much of a problem. And if it happens fairly quickly, uh, so that we had this period that's maybe it's a little over a year when we really had to have restrictions, I think we can bounce back quite a bit. Uh, a lot of businesses can start up again, uh, and so uh, it's we still got, uh, we've gone through a lot of rough times. We've got more rough times ahead of us. Uh, but I do think we're gonna pull through all that and I do think we're gonna be able to bounce back after we do.
1: Let's say we get through this one and we defeat the virus. Do you expect another pandemic to come and how how would we handle that one?
0: Well, when you have 10 billion people in the world all flying around each other in crowded places uh, that as we see new infectious diseases can come up and uh, and quickly spread around the globe. You know, the, the Centers for Disease Control had a system it was trying to put in place for globally detecting new infections and responding to them quickly so that they don't become pandemics, Uh, that uh, has been curtailed uh, and that needs to be put back in place. I think the whole world uh, has learned this lesson here uh, the hard way. Um, We're going to have more uh, more pandemics. Uh, I do think, though, that with the right um, public health techniques, we can respond to them quickly and uh, keep them under control.
1: We'll take it seriously a lot quicker and probably be quicker in doing some of the things that you and other health professionals advise, right?
0: I think so. You know, um, SARS came out in 2003, I believe it was, uh, and it hit um, South Korea pretty hard. Then, when COVID came around, uh, South Korea has done, I would say, the best of any country in the world because they very quickly remembered what they did for SARS and they just reinstituted that. Uh, So, people were wearing masks, they did the other social distancing things, they did testing, they did contact tracing. Uh, so the whole world now has learned how to do that. And so if we get another virus like this, we can put this in place much more quickly than uh, we did this go around.
1: Do you think masks will be like our cell phones, our car keys and our wallets? We'll just kind of have one all the time. Uh,
0: well, I certainly hope we're not in a situation where we always have to wear masks. I hope we get past this epidemic, but I think uh, we'll remember how to wear them. And so if we get a new respiratory virus that crops up and people will very quickly remember how to put that mask back on again
1: when you were working in New York you were really priding yourself on the public health measures that passed in the city like banning smoking in public places cutting down on the consumption of salt and sugary drinks and while Commissioner here as you know we have the sugary drinks tax which has led to a decrease in at least the purchasing of these things in Philadelphia whether or not they're going to the suburbs Uh, there are different theories. Um, How does fighting a pandemic compared to trying to attack some of the things, some of our habits that are a lot easier to attack?
0: You know, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, public health is not just about infectious diseases, it's also about chronic diseases that are put at risk uh, by things like smoking and unhealthy eating and lack of physical activity. Uh, And we address all of those. Um, And in fact, uh, smoking kills more people than COVID has or than COVID will uh and so we all need to take that seriously uh and there are things that we can do as a society to uh reduce smoking rates and have everyone live uh, longer healthier lives uh so um i think maybe this is a moment for people to think about those other health problems as well uh, and think you know do we really want to have um every corner store and every bodega in town uh selling cigarettes uh to young people so they become addicted to this product that's going to kill them or should we take some steps there as well so we're going to continue to talk about those when people Uh, have uh, relaxed enough in COVID to think about those because we think there's a lot of opportunity to save lives there too.
1: One more bonus question for you, Dr. Farley. The Eagles just announced that there will be no fans at Lincoln Financial Field for home games for the time being. How hopeful are you for a sport that is extreme contact sport where the players are not in a bubble, like say the NBA and the NHL, how convinced are you that they're going to be able to get through a full season?
0: Well, you know, there's a lot of safety protocols that they have in place. Uh, There's testing, uh, and that's helpful. Uh, More important though, they need the players and the rest of the team need to be wearing masks when they're around each other, not in a game. Uh, They're not gonna wear masks in a a game situation, but when they're not in a game situation when they're inside, uh, then they won't be spreading the infection amongst each other. Uh, Even with that, I expect that there will be some cases um, in the professional football players. Now, these are, by the nature who they really are, these are healthy people. And so if they get this infection, they'll probably do okay with it. Uh, I don't think we're going to be able to eliminate that. I'm hoping that they'll keep it at a low enough level that uh, they can go forward and that they're not putting uh, the folks that they come in contact to at risk.
1: Dr. Farley, I'm heading back down the hallway here at Channel 6. I must put on my mask. But I want to thank you for joining us on the True Philadelphia podcast. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Farley. Okay, thank you. I love the mask. Thanks to Dr. Thomas Farley, while his earlier briefings took place daily, these days they are down to just two per week. One day, they will not be necessary at all. We all hope that we are let out of this pandemic safely and soon. I'm Matt O'Donnell. Thanks for watching the True Philadelphia Podcast.